0: Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery.
1: My name's Jessie, and I'll be continuing on with the podcast for a little while. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as in traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. So welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's Okay. So would you be able to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe some things that you do to keep well? Ah, oh, yeah,
0: definitely. So um, I just wanted to say it's really a privilege to be here. So, um, you know, I listen to the podcast and I think it's such a valuable resource for people that are struggling with body and eating concerns. So, I'm just so grateful. But I guess a bit about me. I grew up on the northern beaches in Sydney. And I relocated to Melbourne about 12 years ago. And I have two children, a five and a half year old and 16 month old and two fur babies. And I've worked as a psychologist since 2009, but it wasn't until after I completed a doctorate in clinical psychology in 2015 that I started to specialise in the area of eating disorders. And so for the past five and a half years, I've worked in the eating disorder team in the Department of Adolescent Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And um, prior to going on maternity leave in 2021, I was also working privately at a specialist eating disorder clinic in Melbourne. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's me. I guess in terms of self-care, I have to say my journey to finding kind of effective self-care practices has been a challenging one. And I still don't think I've quite mastered it yet. So um, historically, my self-care has been very achievement focused, which, you know, while that can feel good, it doesn't always fill your bucket or help you kind of feel grounded and more peaceful. And so since having kids, I've had to really do a bit of a self-care overhaul because it's so important for me to kind of show up them in a grounded and present way so I guess what I sort of really lean into now when I'm feeling stressed um, I find music is very grounding for me and it really helps me kind of come back to the present moment particularly when I'm feeling very anxious and it's actually lovely because it's something that I share my husband and I are quite different and um, from it's sort of temperament perspectives and so Music is one thing that we do share together. So it's also something that helps us feel connected when life gets really busy. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I find really helpful is moving my body. So I find core and strength training to be really grounding when I'm feeling anxious and indecisive. And it's sort of a way of gaining perspective around what's sort of truly important. And I think another thing is I'm so blessed to have really supportive friends and family who I feel I can be really open and vulnerable with when I'm struggling. And I find that to be so helpful and I'm so grateful for that too. Um, and what would I be a psychologist without seeing a psychologist? So <laughs> <laughs> um, so certainly psychology throughout my journey as a psychologist and even before that has been something that has been really, really helpful in taking care of myself and helping me like laugh and play and you know keep coming back to my values when things are feeling a bit overwhelming so yeah.
1: Yeah, Constant constant learning and support. So to start our episode off we'd like to ask our guest about a challenge that they've recently experienced and how they have managed to overcome it.
0: So the biggest challenge that I've most recently faced is becoming a parent. I'm going to kind of own that i lean more towards over control in terms of kind of my coping style and so with that i guess i am prone to anxiety i love structure and routine i like predictability and you know the transition to becoming a mum was really tough in that there was a lot i couldn't control Mm -hmm. Um, my day my days felt constantly plagued by uncertainty And I guess the skills in the past when I came up with a problem that I used to solve the problem, you know, reading or, you know, signing up for courses, I just couldn't use. They just, I didn't have time for one. I was so tired and they just weren't altogether that helpful because you sort of got lots of different ideas and it was hard to know which one to kind of go with. So I guess the things that kind of took me from a place of feeling incredibly overwhelmed to enjoying parenting was really leaning in and being very open with family and friends about how I was feeling, which I like felt very vulnerable around at the time because parenting was always something that I wanted to feel like I was doing well. So to say I was struggling was hard um, and it was a game changer for me, mm-hmm. um, kind of grounding myself in the present moment without kind of getting too up in the future you know and sort of I would kind of find myself getting stuck in thinking you know if this is what's going on now what's it going to be like you know five years time you know we're going to be still here and so grounding myself and just remembering and just kind of getting through that moment and bringing self-compassion to my struggle um, was really important and then I think really again kind of leaning into values to help me guide in those moments of real uncertainty you know, leaning into my values to kind of think about how I wanted to show up with my struggle and how I wanted to show up as a parent kind of helped pave a kind of path for me that felt like I was kind of in charge and kind of in
1: control of what I could be. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And your kids will all have different personalities as well. they do actually
0: my eldest is definitely under controlled and my youngest is definitely I think leaning towards over control (laughs) like she walks around the house and she's just like cleans everything and she tries to get my eldest dressed like in the morning (laughs) and I'm like and she just yeah she likes things to be ordered and like you know and she's only like Mm. 16 months and I just think oh "Oh." my god
1: (laughs) that's like my my brother he liked my mom to do everything for him but me I was like getting myself changed so early I was like no I want to do it I want to do it
0: yeah it's like (laughs) it's independent no thank you I got this
1: but it's starting to also see them you know grow and develop and stuff as well because it could change
0: exactly it could you know and with both of them I'm trying to kind of support how they are in the world and allow them you know space to kind of be who they are and kind of help them with things that they struggle with so trying to get my eldest to be like a little more autonomous with like any of, you know, dressed maybe and like with my youngest try and like, like, it's okay. I, I can help you with that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's the most important part, just the support part, you know. So oh. like doing very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we hope. <laughs> <laughs> what are the characteristics of an overcontrolled personality or coping style and how is it thought to develop?
0: So I guess another way of thinking about kind of over-controlled coping is self-control, which is I think a term people are probably maybe more familiar with. And so self-control refers to like a person's ability to uh, regulate their feelings so that they don't act on kind of thoughts, actions or urges in order to achieve long-term goals. So an example of this that I always think back to is when I you know, was um, got my first job and I had all these best intentions that I was going to save for my own car. And I was going to have this beautiful apartment on the beach. And um, I found myself spending all my money, uh, which it wasn't much of the time on, you know, clothes or music concerts or whatever, you know, was going on. And my dreams of uh, my long term dreams of owning a car just in an apartment just never came to fruition. So Uh, In those moments, my self-control probably wasn't as um, effective as I'd hoped it would be. But um, I guess in radically open DBT or dialectical behaviour therapy, which we'll be referring to a bit later, it sort of really looks at sort of over control as a personality or coping style that's characterised by excessive control. And so... When we think about how does it come about, it's thought to result from the interplay between a person's biology, so kind of their genetic makeup and their environment. So this may be the family they grew up in, or it could be kind of societal influences, which then come together and transact and um, result in kind of an overcontrolled creeping style. And so, in terms of kind of genetic influences, there are a number of biological factors which influence the way kind of over-controlled individuals perceive the world. And so one is kind of a high sensitivity to threat. And so what this refers to is a person's tendency to respond more quickly and intensely to kind of perceived threats in their environment. And so what this results in is levels of kind of physiological body-based anxiety in most situations. And this anxiety extends to social situations. So if I think about a lot of the young people that I work with, They often share with me just how stressful they find social interactions because of these high levels of anxiety and because of how they shape their fear around of possibly being rejected within their social circles or not seeming as competent as other people that they might be interacting with. And the other thing to say about kind of this high level of anxiety is that it tends to shape avoidance response of like novel experiences. Um, and risk-taking and so people end up kind of doing activities they're familiar with and not trying out new kind of things because they're they are fearful of those experiences or they find them very stressful so that's kind of one biological factor another is low reward sensitivity and this refers to how excitable a person is and sort of how readily they experience pleasure so people who identify as over-controlled tend to have quite low reward sensitivity for social events so what that means is they're kind of they experience less excitement at the idea of going and they also sort of tend to enjoy themselves less as they're happening and so this can become a bit of a negative cycle whereby if you've kind of had experiences in the past that haven't been overly rewarding then you're kind of less motivated to kind of attend social events in the future and so and it sort of maintains that anxiety. However, interestingly, OC folk kind of generally experience high reward sensitivity associated with, like, achievement-oriented tasks. So, you know, when I speak with my young people who experience sort of disordered eating, you know, they'll talk about how when they resist urges to eat or when they engage in really high levels of exercise, this feels really good. You know, they feel like a lot of pride and, you know, they feel like they've really achieved something worthwhile. The other kind of biological factor is high inhibitory control. And so this is referring to that kind of really high levels of self-control and being able to kind of inhibit responses that aren't going to kind of get you where you want to go long term. But it also refers to their ability to be able to inhibit showing other people how they're feeling. And so, you know, it's really important to say that, it's, you know, not to say it as if it aren't feeling stuff, they can be really feeling intense emotions. They're just able to kind of hold it in and not signal it to other people. Um, and then kind of the last biological kind of contributor is high attention to detail. So people with sort of an OC temperament tend to notice details that other people don't. And they also can, they also describe like really strong urges to fix things that they consider to kind of not be okay or to be wrong. And this again can kind of with the people i work with can extend to their body so if they notice there's something that's not okay in the way that they see their body or they feel in their body it's very hard for them to not to act on ideas to change it because of that
1: does it cause any type of emotion not socializing and doing all those things to achieve but not having that connection
0: yeah it does young people often talk about how There's a part of them that wants to really connect and kind of have intimacy in relationships and not feel so much on the outer, and there's also this high level of anxiety about how they would go about doing that Mm. because they'll often share with me that it doesn't feel very safe to disclose kind of their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions, There's a lot of anxiety around that and so it leads them to feel very vulnerable and so they don't feel at ease and then it just they don't feel like that they're able to kind of socialise in the way that they want to or in a way that people will really connect with or want to spend time with them. And then they do a lot of kind of monitoring and reflection afterwards and sort of in their mind feel like it didn't go very well.
1: Mm. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, but a lot of the part of being human and working and even doing those things where you get achievement, you still need to be working with people and communicating what you're doing. And if that's a problem and you're not comfortable doing that, it just makes it quite a hard thing to do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what are the environmental factors? I mean, the
0: ones that I mentioned, they're going to mention they're not all of the environmental factors and not everybody who kind of identifies as kind of over-controlled in their coping style has had these experiences, but I guess just they're kind of common examples that people share. So often the folk will sort of say, look, I kind of grew up in a family system or a culture where I was really encouraged to manage feelings on my own, that there was this sense of being quite autonomous about sort of self-regulation. And there were messages that I received about not wanting to share feelings because it might burden other people around me. And so I've kind of always sort of just kept my feelings to myself. Another kind of message that can be kind of internalised is this idea around it's not okay to make mistakes, that, you know, you've got to be perfect at everything from day dot. And so that can lead to this constant striving and this constant sense of, you know, being perfectionistic in what they do. And then there can also be this sort of message around it's important to always kind of be prepared for the worst you know so that you're constantly kind of hyper vigilant to threats and you know thinking about how you're going to self manage and cope if things don't go so well so it's hard to be kind of spontaneous and just kind of relaxed if you like and i guess when you kind of have that transaction between biology and environment it kind of you know when we think about what is what characterizes kind of a over-controlled coping style what we see in these folks is that they'll often sort of mask and kind of suppress their feelings thought and thoughts and kind of desires they often talk about being highly anxious overly cautious and quite rule driven they talk about being very perfectionistic and setting really high standards for themselves which they constantly feel like they need to be striving for so They'll sort of say it's hard to kind of relax and just do things for pleasure or for fun because that sort of is a waste of time. I need to be achieving at all times. They can kind of be aloof and distant in relationships and they often feel exhausted by kind of social interactions. And they can also kind of sacrifice what they essentially need at an emotional level and a kind of social connectedness level in the service of either meeting other people's needs or kind of more of achievement oriented. tasks.
1: Wow. So how might an eating disorder be used to gain a sense of control back in someone's life? So I think there's probably lots of ways and
0: these are kind of the common I guess themes that young people and and folks that I've worked with have shared with me so they're sort of not talking to any one person in particular but just kind of a kind of common experience so what people share is that, you know, having kind of high levels of kind of body-based anxiety from a young age can lead to a sort of sense of self-consciousness, particularly around their body, that there been something that's not safe in their body. And I guess because it's happening, it's, you know, when they're so little, there can be a limited understanding of what is actually going on, what am I feeling, why am I feeling it? And so this self-consciousness can kind of lead them to kind of look at themselves versus other and feel different while at the same time kind of desiring sameness and wanting to kind of fit in and not stand out and so I think that over time the body just becomes a really unsafe place to kind of inhabit and so they sort of share with me that you know restricting the amount they eat or at times kind of overeating can really help them kind of control their internal state by kind of Dampening down distressing or painful emotions, including anxiety. And then over time, this strategy becomes quite negatively reinforcing and that they're kind of motivated to keep doing it because it takes away these really aversive feelings. So that's kind of one way. I guess the other thing is for OC kind of folk, the focus on achievement and performance based tasks you know, in order to feel good about themselves, it kind of leads them to be vulnerable to outsourcing their identity and self-worth to the world around them. Um, So whether it be friends, family, their culture. And so this can make them vulnerable to be motivated to change their weight or their shape in order to control how people see them. And so often young people sort of share that if, you know, they want to feel more acceptable or likeable or valued to their friends or their peers. And so changing their body or their shape of the way feels like a way that they can do that, that's in their control. And then lastly, I think while many things in the world, you know, are very complex and uncertain, including relationships. You know, I feel like relationships are very difficult to navigate at times. You know, there is a clear formula to kind of how to lose weight, which involves kind of rigid and rule governed behaviour. And so young people I work with share how it feels very safe to kind of engage in these behaviours because they know what the outcome is likely to be and equally how proud and satisfied they feel when they can kind of gain control over their weight or their shape.
1: But then it can really make them feel a sense of out of control with your relationships between people, because if you want people to like you, but you're not engaging with them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the cost, you know, of their attempts to kind of create certainty in the world comes at the cost of kind of losing connection with friends, with family, which is just so so sad because when you sort of ultimately kind of sit with someone and try and understand, well, what is the ultimate function of of this kind of, eating or like eating behaviors you know ultimately i think it is this sense of i just want to feel okay i want to feel acceptable i want to feel that i'm wanted as part of my friendship cer- circle and so the very behaviors that they're doing to try and fit in and feel connected are actually getting in the way of that and so
1: yeah it's... you might not be able to have shared meals or anything with people is that
0: yeah. Yeah, well, I think I mean, you know, young people sort of share. I I go to meals, but I might not eat mm-hmm. everything that other people are eating or I've, you know, eaten beforehand, so I'll go and I'll, I'll show up, but you know, I haven't eaten with everyone. And so, you know, in their mind what they feel is important is their kind of being present for people they care about. And I guess what can be signaled though to others around them is maybe a sense of judgment, you know, about what other people are eating not being okay, or a sense of superiority, which other people can kind of feel like, oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to hang out with that person. So, you know, what they're intending to signal can actually not be what they
1: end up signaling. Yeah. So if they feel they're eating is the right way to eat, like a morality with it. Exactly. And so that choice, you know, often they'll say, but I
0: showed up, you know, I went, it was so hard for me to go. And, you know, it's about validating. Absolutely. I completely understand how hard it was for you to go. And when you sat there and kind of didn't eat what everyone else was eating, you know, what, how do you think that landed with them, you know, and how does that fit with your value, say, of kind of participating with your friends, you know, or being really present with them or contributing to their happiness? And so, really trying to help people kind of think about how their behavior fits with their value system, but also how it's received by others.
1: Yes. But you can also, you know, eat what everyone else is eating and be happy with where you are as well. So, there's quite a contradiction if they think they're eating different foods, that that's going to cause a massive difference. And sometimes it really doesn't.
0: Totally. So, I think that's where I, what I love about RODBT is that it really looks at the signaling. So, it really looks at like, what behaviours are kind of occurring between people that may be keeping a person kind of ostracised and out of kind of their, their group. And, you know, in some circumstances, you know, it may be totally cool to show up and have something completely different, you know, like it. And in other circumstances, it might actually be really impactful. And so the work is really about differentiating between the two and learning when it's problematic and when it's okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So what is the problem
0: of over-control? So I think, well, an important place to start for me in kind of thinking, well, what is kind of psychological health and wellbeing? What does that look like? And so from an RODBT perspective, it views emotional health as involving three interacting features, which are openness. So that refers to kind of being open to new experiences and kind of feedback from the world that is different to maybe what you believe or what you think in the service of being able to learn and to grow. The other thing is around being flexible. So being able to be flexible in the context of changing environmental circumstances or kind of unexpected life events when you kind of have to. And the third is the connection piece, which you're sort of talking about, which it's not so much about how many friends you have. It's about the quality of those connections. And so um, for psychological well-being, research kind of shows that we, we need at least one connection in our life where we feel we have the space to be able to share things that we feel vulnerable around, that we can kind of be seen, that we can feel supported, that someone would make sacrifices for us. And so when we kind of then think about kind of an overcontrolled coping style, which we've kind of talked about, a lot of those features which characterise kind of OC folk, you know, while they can be incredibly helpful in kind of achievement-oriented kind of situations, you know, like maybe at work if you're you know, building a rocket ship for NASA, like it's very helpful <laughs> to be very OC in the way that you cope and your personality style, But sometimes in the context of relationships, when your aim is to build intimacy with people, sometimes they can kind of get in the way. And so OC folk can sort of talk about feeling really isolated and lonely in relationship, kind of regardless of, you know, how many friends they have or how often they see them. And then I guess the other thing to say is that over-controlled kind of coping and personality style has actually been associated with like severe and enduring psychological conditions like anorexia nervosa and treatment resistant depression and anxiety.
1: No, definitely. So how might individuals who experience over control struggle with establishing new relationships and maintaining social bonds?
0: So I guess, you know, when we think about how we build intimacy and connection in relationships, Often this is done kind of by sharing our thoughts and our feelings and I guess our desires with the people that we care about. And OC folk tend to kind of withhold disclosing personal experiences, particularly those which, you know, might make them feel embarrassed or ashamed. And often when you sort of try and understand what that's about, it's because they fear that if they do that, if they fear that if they share about moments where they haven't felt competent um, that they may be rejected or disliked. However, this is problematic for the development and maintenance of relationships because when a person, when you withhold personal information, you can come across as kind of aloof and distant in the way that you relate. And this actually in turns, it sort of comes back to that social signaling idea. It sort of signals a sense that you don't trust the person that you're communicating with. And so, you know, when you think about kind of an undercurrent of mistrust in relationships, it's very difficult to kind of develop intimacy in the context of that. And it really kind of keeps people at arm's length. And I guess the other thing about not disclosing is that sometimes it can also signal a sense of maybe grandiosity or, you know, feeling more competent than the person that you're kind of communicating with. The other thing is that kind of OC folk tend to use quite an indirect communication style when they're seeking to get their needs met or saying no to things they don't want. And I guess it's their way as well of trying to not be impactful on relationships. So when we think back to that idea of possibly growing up in, a, in an environment where maybe they were in some way punished for kind of sharing emotions that felt were impactful for other people around them. You know, this can kind of set up this idea. If I say what I truly feel, I might hurt someone's feelings and I don't want to do that. So they might sort of communicate in some way to try and control other people's kind of behaviour. So, for example, kind of wanting someone to help you out but not wanting to have to tell them what you actually need, hoping that they'll kind of guess what you need without, you know, without you having to tell them. And the problem with it is that often it can make situations worse it can make people feel controlled and it kind of erodes goodwill in relationships.
1: Mm. You'll be left feeling un- misunderstood and that person won't understand you either. So then it's quite a miscommunication.
0: Yeah, exactly that. And it's, you know, some of the, the ways I think, you know, I've talked with, and even in sort of therapeutic moments where, you know, I'll have a young person say, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I absolutely will do that. And I'm like, okay great great oh wow I'm so I'm so pleased and then you know oh. next session I'll come back you know how did that go and they're like oh um yeah I didn't I didn't do it I'm like
1: mm. I'm
0: like but why you were so enthused um like, I just I just really didn't want to and it's so interesting because I was like is that what you were is that what you were telling me last week and they're sort of like yeah I kind of meant for you to kind of know that I wasn't that into it and so I think it's that, you're right, like in that miscommunication is that what they're saying is actually very different to what people are receiving. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they end up feeling kind of misunderstood. Yeah. Um, Relationships get impacted because people feel like they're signing on for things that they're really keen about but they're not actually. And so, again, I think it can lead people on the receiving end to feel a certain kind of inauthenticity in the relationship or left kind of guessing like they know there's something not being said but they don't know what it is and when you've got those kind of messages going on it sort of doesn't lend itself for people wanting to really lean into the relationship or kind of develop kind of stronger relationships there can be an unease there.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like when people go to therapy and they don't want to be there. They're like, yep, good, everything's fine, everything's great. And then you're like, oh, great, everything's fine. But then if you look at their history, you're like, oh, it's definitely not. It's not. Yes, <laughs> that's so true. And I think that's one of the things with OC folk that we talk about is the I'm
0: fine phenomenon. And it's sort of how do you kind of help OC folk understand that like that's kind of not helpful to kind of developing a relationship based on trust and intimacy and understanding yes
1: and integrating those parts of yourself as well like not denying them if that makes sense yeah exactly
0: that and that's such a good point because you know one of the things I guess as well about relationship is that when you kind of suppress your emotional responses to things you know when you inhibit them and you don't allow yourself to feel them it's really hard to know yourself you know because you're not allowing your feelings to kind of guide what's important to you Mm -hmm. and you can't sort of read emotions in others either so you're right it's sort of like well you know and if they're engaging in behaviors like restriction for example you know often it is true they're sort of like I'm very numb I I'm, I'm okay like I there's not I'm not feeling anything right now so there's a
1: truth to it too yeah and then you're not really sure what you're feeling what other people are feeling
0: you know absolutely <laughs> it's, it's so hard being kind of an island with your own feelings you know to not be able to share that with another and and sort of have the experience of someone meeting you as a human and kind of going oh yeah I totally get that you know I do that all the time mm-hmm. um you know to miss out on that it's really lonely you know it's a really you know lonely time and it doesn't allow change to happen in terms of how you view things it's like you know those ideas that you have about sharing and about what's okay and what's not okay they just kind of stay rigidly fixed because you're not having experiences to challenge, challenge
1: those ideas. So Yeah, definitely, actually. So what is RODBT, also known as radically open dialectical behavioral therapy? <laughs> so
0: it's an evidence-based trans-diagnostic treatment, which has been developed to address kind of a range of disorders characterized by excessive self-control or over control. And so it's sort of targeted treatment resistant anxiety and depression anorexia nervosa and obsessive compulsive personality disorder and it's transdiagnostic because it says that a lot of these experiences are more similar than different so it's sort of not targeting kind of the symptoms per se so say with you know anorexia nervosa it's not targeting kind of the restriction directly but rather what it's targeting is kind of the similarities to these experiences which is sort of this over-controlled kind of temperament coping style which essentially gets in the way of people being able to feel connected in their relationships and part you know of a tribe if you like.
1: So what are some ways that people can enhance openness and social connectedness? Uh, So Firstly, I think mindful
0: self-inquiry. There's always mindfulness in here somewhere. (laughs) And really that's about kind of noticing familiar ideas or beliefs about the value of being open in relationships. So, for example, a lot of young people who identify as OC often say, you know, they're sort of coming to treatment with beliefs about it not feeling safe to be open in relationships because maybe people can't be trusted or maybe they might leave, you know, if they were truly open about how they feel. And the, I guess the problem with having kind of these beliefs and preconceived ideas is that when you enter into kind of social relationships, you're bringing those with you and they're likely to activate kind of your threat system. And so when you're in a fight and flight or freeze response, it's very hard to signal in a pro-social way to the people around you. So, you know, we know that if you sort of signal like a flat face and, you know, not you sort of have very restricted in your affect and, and tone that it's actually quite stressful for the people around you in terms of their nervous system so you know when you're aware of kind of the ideas that you're going into social you know settings with that you can kind of use various strategies to kind of calm your nervous system and be more open to the possibility of difference that's sort Mm of one way another is around using mindfulness to I guess, really help OC folk kind of increase their awareness of and exposure to feelings. Because like you said, you know, if you have this constant experience of suppressing kind of how you feel, it's hard to know what you're feeling, you know, what's a feeling, what's a body sensation, what's a thought, how are they different, why am I having one now? And also, so it's kind of exposing them to the feeling so they're better able to name and to label. But it's also... know by having increased emotional responsiveness you can kind of attune to other people's emotional responses more effectively so you can be more empathic and it also means that it increases their sense of pleasure in social interactions which is really important if we want to think about kind of reinforcing kind of openness and social connectedness the other thing is about learning how to kind of activate your social safety system so that you can kind of engaging pro-social responding and you can kind of display emotion that's kind of context dependent. So that's important. And also practicing kind of open expression of emotion with people you care about, because that's part of what, you know, builds intimacy is being able to say, Hey, I really like you, or I really like doing this with you. I like to spend more time with you. Mm. And then there's a few more skills. There's so many in RO that I feel because it's all geared towards that. So I was like, don't talk about too many but here I am
1: I've got four so (laughs)
0: the more the better okay great so there's another skill in RO called flexible mind varies and this is all about supporting people try out new activities and kind of going opposite to avoid situations that they perceive to be threatening or unenjoyable and I find this to be such an important skill even just from the kind of at the level of doing something totally different like checking in on a feeling or, you know, like sharing a feeling with someone else. And I find this skill is really important with OC folk who want to maintain relationships with people who are more spontaneous and sort of who are less risk averse than they are because, you know, part of sort of feeling like someone you're in a relationship with is willing to kind of do something for you. You know, they'll often ask, you know, OC folk to go to parties where there might be people they don't know or food that they, you know, they're not sure what the food's going to be. And so it's like, how do I do that in the service of my relationship? So I find that's a really good skill. And then lastly, Aro has another skill called Match Plus One, which is a really key skill to help kind of over-control folk build and deepen interpersonal relationships. And it does it by, one, kind of teaching clients how to reveal personal information in a graded and context-dependent way in order to build intimacy and closeness in relationships, But it also helps people identify kind of their own intimacy needs as well as the intimacy needs of others so they can kind of adjust their personal disclosure accordingly because i guess building and maintaining connection is easier when there's a lot of overlap in kind of your desired intimacy levels but it doesn't mean that it's not possible to kind of connect when there's difference so long as people are motivated to i guess meet each other's needs
1: So it's a little bit of the power of vulnerability, it seems as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I guess, you know, one thing that young people kind of talk about is when they're kind of in recovery or working towards recovery with disordered eating, you know, they'll share that, you know, perhaps a romantic partner wants to be more intimate with them than they feel that they're ready for, you know, because of how they're kind of feeling in their body or this sort of sense of self-consciousness. So it's helping them kind of be open to that other person's needs in a way where you know that they feel that they can kind of match the intimacy in a way that's possible so you know we talk about well how else could you meet their needs you know and let's not kind of shut those needs down or necessarily meet them or acquiesce in a way where you don't feel comfortable so how can we be flexible around that
1: So how could you be more flexible while also having interpersonal boundaries?
0: I guess, firstly, I think it's really important for OC folk, here comes the mindfulness again, just to be aware (laughs) of kind of any negative judgments or feelings of mistrust, bitterness or envy that they might be harboring towards people in their life. As again, these internal experiences will um, probably show up in the way that they're socially signalling in the relationship, but I think also it can affect how they're coming in from a, like a, is their mind open or closed? Like, you know, how, how is their mind state? I think the other thing is it's important for OC folk to be aware of how they communicate. Right? So how do they ask for their needs to be met and say no to demands from others? Do they kind of express those wishes openly and directly or do they use kind of indirect communication and disguised demands to get their needs met? And if it's the latter. And I think it's kind of really important for them to practice kind of open communication, uh, which in RO might actually look like outing themselves with loved ones when they notice urges to try and control their behavior. And ARA is very much about, you know, practicing the skills yourself, you know, it's really hard, but, you know, there's sort of more room to ask for what you need and kind of assert what you don't. So... I guess the other thing is to be really aware of kind of if you're actually wanting to maintain a good relationship, say with a friend whom you're having a disagreement with, then remaining open to feedback and validating their position is actually more important than being right, which is something that sometimes OC folk can kind of get stuck on because there's that perfectionism around, you know, right and wrong. On the other hand, if you think that, you know, maintaining your self-respect is your top priority then kind of staying open to kind of critical feedback without automatically agreeing with the other person's position, you know, will be most important. Mm. And then I guess finally using good old-fashioned self-inquiry, which is kind of a cornerstone of our DBT, just to notice when you are in a closed-minded position and to kind of compassionately question any kind of automatic attempts to block feedback from others or blame others for your situation or for how you're feeling in the moment.
1: So how is radical openness different from radical acceptance? So I sort of see radical
0: acceptance as a skill that's designed to help people experience overwhelming emotions without engaging in unhelpful coping behaviours that could make the situation worse. And so I find radical acceptance is particularly helpful in situations in which a person just cannot change their reality, despite desperately wanting to, because, you know, fighting what is just tends to increase suffering. And so I find when people can kind of land in a place where they've, they're wholeheartedly radically accepting, you know, where they're at in the moment, they do sort of often report feeling calmer and maybe more grounded in that moment. So whereas radical openness, on the other hand, is aimed at helping people kind of challenge their perceptions of reality in order to learn and to grow as a person, So it sort of says we see the world as we are, not as it is. Mm. And so it which is like, oh, oh, oh yes, that's probably really true. (laughs) And so it involves kind of actually purposefully leaning into discomfort while at the same time stopping oneself from using kind of coping or habitual kind of coping to regulate any distress that comes up. And so you actually want to take people to a place where they notice a lot of energy or discomfort, which in RADBT is called Like a Person's Edge, because it's here that we tend to learn the most. It's often where there's most energy, that's your blind spot. And that's what's going to help you, I guess, learn more about yourself and the world. And I think, you know, radical openness can really enhance relationships because it
1: signals humility and a willingness to kind of learn from the world. Mm. So why is it important not to limit yourself in life and say yes to opportunities? Because (laughs) I feel like the irony (laughs) is that
0: events and experiences in life that we often feel most anxious about, like we feel the courage to go after them, they actually turn out to be the most worthwhile and the most meaningful. And I think because, sadly, insight, so kind of knowing what you know and not knowing what you don't know, can only teach us so much about ourselves and the world. And so, to learn more, we actually need to actively get out of our comfort zone and engage in kind of novel and unfamiliar experiences in order to kind of get the most out of out of life. Really,
1: definitely, change and growth out of the <laughs> same comfort zones. You know, the comfort zone can keep you there
0: totally. And I say, you know, like to you know to grow, you need to challenge yourself. It's in the the struggle that's where the learning is. It's like, really, <laughs> <Are> you <laughs> sure? <laughs> The dark and the light, you know, you appreciate things more. You do, you really do. And looking back, I think perspective is just so helpful as well, because you, at the time, it can feel just so hard and it's so, it can be so painful. And then, you know, when you have a bit of distance and perspective and you look back, you know, you can kind of see what there was to learn in that. So just sort of encourage people who feel like they might lean towards over control in their coping style to kind of not wait until they are free from anxiety or self-consciousness to show up in important relationships in an open, vulnerable and authentic way, because it's in the joining and the participating with people that these feelings will lessen and that you'll kind of begin to perceive the world in new and exciting ways.
1: Well, thank you, Alicia, so much for this interview. It's been great. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jesse. It's been
0: lovely connecting with you today.
1: Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.